Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The Gospel of Matthew contains eight references to seismic activity, earthquakes, and other shakings, six of which only occur in his Gospel. Can it be this seismic motif lies at the very heart of the Gospel? Brian Carrier says yes. The earthquakes in Matthew resonate with the eschatological day of the Lord and the dawning of the kingdom of God. Join us as we speak with Brian Carrier about his recent book, Earthquakes and Eschatology in the Gospel According to Matthew. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Brian Carrier earned his Ph.D. in Biblical Studies from the Catholic University of America and currently serves as Director of Discipleship at the District Church in Washington, D.C. Brian, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies. Hey, it's great to be here with you, Michael. Thank you for having me. So, Brian, tell us something about yourself and how you landed on this idea of earthquakes in Matthew's Gospel. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I became a Christian in my mid-20s, and that's really where my love for for the Bible started. Before that, I had zero interest in it. Um, But I started reading it then, and I read it for years without ever noticing earthquakes in Matthew. Um, And I love the Gospels. That's what I read the most. And I never noticed any of these these earthquakes before. Uh, And when I first noticed it was actually after I'd finished seminary. I did an MDiv. And by a strange set of circumstances, I ended up teaching English in China for a year. Uh, And I remember vividly sitting in uh, my apartment over in China, and I was reading uh, Matthew's Gospel, actually in Greek, so my seminary professors would be proud. Um, And I came across this account of Jesus calming the sea. And I noticed in Matthew, it says, uh, literally, there was a great earthquake on the sea. And I just stopped and did a double take, and I, and I looked at the word, which was seismos in Greek, where we get the English seismic. And I just remember saying, that, that looks really odd. That doesn't really seem to fit here. And so the first thing I did was check Mark and Luke, and in their accounts of Jesus calming the storm, they don't use uh, the word seismos. They're using uh, a term that means like a windstorm. So it's only Matthew who's using this, this term seismos in his account of Jesus calming the storm. And so again, it just made me pause more because if you believe in Mark and priority, and, and I subscribe to that theory, that would mean Matthew's taken a, a term that really doesn't seem to fit the context very well uh, and, and actually introduced a bit of ambiguity in his retelling of the account when he's, when he's appropriated it from Mark, uh, which seems to go against his normal practice. So, so that gave me pause and, and made me want to look into it more just to try to understand what was going on. And the, the response that you see in a lot of commentaries is, well, the word seismos can mean earthquake, but it can also mean storm. And where that's coming from primarily is from the Greek lexicon BDAG, which, which lists both of those as potential definitions. But when you look into it a little further, you see that the examples that BDAG is citing uh, in support of the storm definition, they don't actually describe storms. In, in these, these examples, you have earthquakes 
that are mentioned in storm contexts. So the sources are talking about storms and you have earthquakes being mentioned. The, the word itself doesn't really mean storm. So it would really seem then that this doesn't fit at face value. Uh, you can't just explain it away as well the word means storm sometimes because it would seem that Matthew is potentially the only time that this word is, is being used in that way. Um, so it would be much more consistent to say, no, it means earthquake, and, and that's what it means in this context as well. So that had me really interested, and so I started looking into it a little further. And once I noticed that earthquake at the at sea, then I started to realize there's other earthquakes in Matthew's gospel as well. Yes, there's the one where Jesus is uh, talking about the signs of the end times, and you have wars and famines and earthquakes, and that's in all three gospels. Uh, but but the other ones that I had never noticed before either, or paid attention to, I should say, are at the death and resurrection of Christ. At the cross, when Jesus dies, you have the veil of the temple being torn, you have rocks being split, the earth is shaken, and then you have that cryptic passage about the saints rising from the dead. Uh, and then at the resurrection, you see that when the angel comes down and sits on the stone in front of the tomb, that there's also another great earthquake. And when you look again at, at uh, Mark or Luke or John, you see that those earthquakes aren't mentioned in their accounts either. So here you have in Matthew an earthquake at the when Jesus calms the sea. You have an earthquake at Jesus's death. You have an earthquake at Jesus's resurrection, pivotal events in the gospel. And they're only mentioned in Matthew's gospel. And that made me wonder, why is Matthew including these earthquakes, whereas the other gospel writers are not? Uh, and before I get off this, uh, I should add that I, I found, too, that earthquakes uh, are described by the noun seismos, but there's a verb, uh, cognate verb, sio, that describes like a shaking uh, motion. And what you find is in Matthew's gospel, there's, there's two accounts of people being shaken. Uh, when Jesus enters Jerusalem uh, in chapter 21, it says the entire city was shaken. And then in the resurrection scene, the guards at the tomb uh, are likewise shaken. And so there's this, you know, cognate thread between the earthquakes and then you have these people being shaken. It's the same root. And as with the earthquakes themselves, these accounts of Jerusalem being shaken and the guards at the tomb being shaken are found only in Matthew. So it just made me stop and say, like, there's got to be something going on. Why is Matthew recording all of these seismic uh, references and none of the other gospels are. Uh, and so that's really where I wanted to, to understand when I did my studies was just why is Matthew including these references? What does he mean to tell us by, by mentioning them in his narrative? In your book, you propose that the significance of seismic language in the gospel of Matthew is rooted in the Old Testament. Tell us about that background. Right. So you know, I'm trying to understand why is Matthew using this terminology? Why does he have this motif uh, running through his gospel? And so the place to start is getting a sense of what those words may have meant to Matthew. Uh, so what did the word seismos or the verb sio, what did these terms uh, connote back in, in that time frame? And I wanted to start broad. Um, you know, I do think the Old Testament is is the, the place we should be focusing in on, which I'll get to. But I wanted to start and just look at the general landscape, the general culture and context at that time. And so when you look at earthquakes and say Greco-Roman literature and then other Jewish literature, you find that there tends to be a fairly consistent theme, and that's earthquakes are almost always related to the activity of the gods, whether it be God showing up, 
uh, in a theophany, whether it be God just intervening in human affairs um, or whether it just be like earthquakes are functioning as a, a sign, uh, usually a negative sign. And so those meanings are, are what you find for the most part in Greco-Roman and then for the most part as well in Jewish literature, which is consistent with what, with what we see in the Old Testament. And that's really where we need to focus, though, when we start thinking about these terms, because it's very clear from the beginning of Matthew's gospel that he's concerned with showing how Jesus both continues the Old Testament, uh, fulfills it, continues it, and and really that's his primary conversation partner. And what tells me that is just at the beginning of the gospel, you see Matthew start with a genealogy uh, that really lays out Israel's history and shows Jesus as, again, the culmination and the continuation of that story. Uh, and also, especially in the first few chapters of the gospel, you see multiple references to Jesus fulfilling the word of the Lord through the prophet, whoever. And so he's really teaching us how to read it that at the opening of the gospel to show, yeah, Jesus is really uh, fulfilling the Old Testament and continuing that story on. So it's clear that this is his project. And for that reason, what the Old Testament says about earthquakes, how it uses those terms is, is really essential. It's at the heart of what I'm trying to understand here. So when you look at earthquakes in the Old Testament, you find that they almost universally uh, refer to God's activity. Um, in the Greco-Roman literature, sometimes they can just be natural phenomenon, but not, not really so in the Old Testament. They're almost always connected to God. Most of these are theophany where God shows up, and we'll talk through some of them. Uh, and sometimes they're what I'm calling non-theophanic intervention. So just another way of saying, like, we don't necessarily have God showing up, but God's action is shaking things, like in Haggai chapter 2, for example. It's God's activity, though, that, that is really connected with earthquakes. Um, but the, the strongest correlation is um, theophany, where God shows up. And I think, you know, probably that's stemming from you have the fundamental account where God appears on Mount Sinai uh, in the book of Exodus, and you see the mountain is shaken, and there's fire, and there's smoke. And even though the Greek version of the Old Testament doesn't use the word earthquake there, um, and the Hebrew version doesn't use the typical word for earthquake, it's still that image of God showing up and shaking the earth is so fundamental. And you see that very image echoed, for example, in in the Psalms or in like 1 Kings 19, where Elijah shows up on Mount Sinai and you see again fire and an earthquake. Um, so I, I think the other example that we have to pay attention to is Judges 5, where you have God's deliverance of the nation of Israel being recounted as God showing up and you have the earth shaking and the clouds just dropping rain. And I think that this image of God showing up to rescue his people, uh, which we could call the the divine warrior motif, God shows up for battle to save his people from, from their enemies, uh, is a motif that runs through the Old Testament. And so you see earthquakes are connected with this image of God as divine warrior all through the Psalms and the prophets. Uh, Psalm 18 is a prominent example uh, of where David is delivered by God coming down to earth with the earth shaking when God does so. You have passages like Micah 1 or Nahum 1 or Habakkuk 3 where God shows up as divine warrior to deliver his people and again the earth is shaken. Uh, and in particular there's a motif running through the Old Testament especially the prophets where God shows up in a very decisive way uh, on an event called the day of the Lord. And this isn't necessarily a particular day across all of the 
Old Testament prophets, it's more of a theme, and there's different days of the Lord, but this this theme of God showing up in a decisive way to judge evil and bring salvation for his people is the same theme that you find in all of these different prophets. And most cases, not all, but most cases, these day of the Lord events are connected with earthquakes. So some of the prominent examples are Isaiah 13, God shows up and there's an earthquake. Isaiah 24, there's earthquakes on the day of the Lord. Ezekiel 38, uh, Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 4, Zechariah 14. These are all accounts of the day of the Lord that involve earthquakes. And so when you look at earthquakes in the Old Testament in summary, they're connected with the activity of God and especially later uh, with the activity of God on the day of the Lord where he comes in a decisive way to, to judge Israel's enemies and more broadly even evil and bring salvation for his people. Um, and again, with this theme, it varies from prophet to prophet, but especially later in time, you see that the day of the Lord becomes a, a very universal event that describes a definitive final coming of God to bring in the new age, to, to bring judgment against the current age and transition it into an age of prosperity and blessing for God's people. So those, those are earthquakes. Uh, what you see briefly for shaking of people or cities uh, is that it's negative. You, you don't want to be shaken in the Old Testament. So the Psalms use the language of, uh, it's translated, translated in English as, you know, my foot slipping, but it's more literally my foot being shaken, or even just I was shaken to describe uh, destruction or even death. Like Psalm 13, the psalmist compares his death to being shaken. Um, you see also in the Septuagint that when the city of Rabbah is destroyed, it says the city is shaken in the day of its destruction. Or Ezekiel 26, the nation or the city of Tyre, uh, the walls are shaken when the city is destroyed. Uh, and then another prominent example of this is um, you have in 2 Kings 17 and 20, where God's talking about the exile of the, the Israelite uh, nation and, and Judah as well, where he uses the term shaken to describe his judgment of the people in, in exile. So shaken uh, language for when it pertains to people is, is uniformly negative or almost uniformly negative, And it, it really relates to judgment. And what you see in contrast in the Psalms is that those people who um, are aligned with God are never shaken. So shaking with when it pertains to people really relates to judgment. Um, Earthquakes in general represent God coming, especially on the day of the Lord, to bring judgment and salvation. One of the interesting and rich examples of seismic language in Matthew's Gospel occurs when Jesus stills a storm. Now, most translations have storm or tempest for the Greek seismos in Matthew 8.24. But you have found deep significance in that rare term, seismos. How does keying in on the use of seismos open up our understanding of Jesus' act? Yeah, good question. Um, so as I mentioned, yeah, the, the term seismos really doesn't seem to be a good fit at face value for that context. And to try to understand why Matthew's including it, then it helps to understand the connotations that the term carried, which we talked about with the Old Testament, with the context of the narrative and see if there's resonance, if there's alignment between those two things. And so when you step back and look at the context of the stilling of the sea, uh, you see that it's not really out by itself. It's within a, a greater context of, of the kingdom of heaven, or in other words, the kingdom of God. And what you find is 
you know, just for example, uh, Matthew chapters five through through nine are bookended by this reference to Jesus going around and preaching about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I think it's 423 and 935. So this bookends this and shows you that this greater context in which the storm stilling is found is really talking about kingdom of heaven. But throughout that, those chapters, you also see the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, I should say, in Matthew peppered throughout. So the Sermon on the Mount talks about blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you see multiple references in the Beatitudes. You see the Lord's Prayer talking about God's kingdom coming. Um, and then you see, just for examples, uh, and then you see also throughout chapters eight and nine, the miracle chapters, that Jesus is doing things um, that really relate to the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, he tells us that in chapter, I think it's 1228, he says, if I'm casting out demons by the finger of God, then you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. So just the fact that Jesus is casting out demons in those chapters, he is saying is a sign that the kingdom of heaven has broken in. Uh, and other things like forgiveness of sins or the raising of the dead, uh, healing uh, infirmities, um, inclusion of Gentiles. These were things that were expected with the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. And you see also even prior to that in the gospel in chapters one through four examples of the kingdom of heaven being set as our context. Uh, the most prominent uh, is the fact that John the Baptist shows up preaching that the kingdom of God or, or in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, and Jesus says the same thing himself in chapter four. So clearly the kingdom of heaven is in view here. And conceptually, this actually makes a lot of sense when you when you think about earthquakes, because as we mentioned, earthquakes are connected with the, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, which is where God decisively intervenes to judge evil and set up his kingdom on earth, which is a, a kingdom of blessing and flourishing. Um, so the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom here is really the second part of the day of the Lord, where God has intervened and you would expect in the day of the Lord flourishing, prosperity, uh, inclusion of the Gentiles, healing uh, people, forgiveness of sins. All of these things were were following the day of the Lord. Uh, they were part of that event. So conceptually, the context really does resonate very strongly with this earthquake language, which were connected with the day of the Lord. And here we have the kingdom of heaven, which you could also equate with the day of the Lord. Uh, and that's a context in which we find the storm stilling account. So it would seem that when you read this earthquake, which is standing out a little bit like a sore thumb on the storm stilling account, that it's really cluing you into this, this kingdom of heaven day of the Lord imagery. Uh, and what you see in, as we mentioned, the day of the Lord, it really is talking about God himself coming for salvation and deliverance and judgment of evil. And what you see in the storm stilling is Jesus, who's, uh, alternatively named Emmanuel or God with us in, in chapter one, God with us is coming and, and saving, right? The disciples are saying, Lord, save. So Emmanuel, God with us is saving uh, in connection with an earthquake, which is, again, reminiscent of God coming on the day of the Lord. Um, and likewise, on the day of the Lord, God judges evil and has victory over evil. Well, in the Jewish uh, mindset at that time, it would seem that the sea represented evil or chaos. So when Jesus is stilling the waters of the storm, uh, he's actually having victory over this um, entity that symbolized evil or chaos. And it, so again, there's perfect resonance there with 
with Day of the Lord imagery and what Jesus is doing in the in the stilling of the storm. And a final thing that, that should be noted is there's also a really strong connection between the cross, the resurrection, and the storm stilling account. And so the storm stilling, you see general themes that are the same, right? There's an earthquake in both of them uh, at the at the cross and resurrection, but there's also an earthquake when Jesus calms the sea. Uh, you see this question about Jesus's identity posed in the storm stilling account, where the disciples ask, like, "Who is this?" or or literally, like, "What sort of being is this?" Uh, in eight twenty seven, and you see an answer to that question by the centurion at twenty seven fifty four. Um, you see a lot of references to salvation in the storm stilling. The disciples ask Jesus to save them. And again, uh, at the cross, he's mocked for not being able to save. But the irony is, of course, that that's precisely how he's saving. Um, you have, uh, you know, that prevalent uh, demonic or evil connotation that the sea could carry in the storm stilling. And at the cross, you hear the, the whispers of Satan in the, the taunts of the spectators and the passersby. You know, if you truly are the son of God. Right. So you have this demonic also echo at the cross. Uh, you see a reference in the storm stilling to Jesus rising uh, from sleep. But it's uh, but the same word is used to describe Jesus rising uh, from the dead at the, at the resurrection account and the saints rising from the dead, um, you know, after after the crucifixion. And again, you see this image of Jesus having victory over sea and the forces of evil and I would say the same things at, at play in the crucifixion and resurrection accounts. So there's definitely a strong thematic tie between the storm stilling and the crucifixion resurrection. And the earthquakes are, are central to that. Uh, even in the resurrection, it's almost the exact same language. Behold, there was a great earthquake. So there's, there's some definite links which suggest that what's, what's happening at the storm stilling account is far more than Jesus just calming the sea. It, it's really attesting to the fact that when Jesus comes, it's the fulfillment of all of these prophecies about God coming at the day of the Lord to redeem his people. Uh, and I think what it's saying, it's both a foreshadowing on the sea of what's going to happen at the crucifixion and resurrection. But I think it's, it's more than that. I think it's saying that it's not just Jesus's death and resurrection, but his entire life and ministry together that are, God's, um, his salvation, um, you know, his appearance and, and deliverance from evil. Um, so it's the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Can you tell us more about the seismic activity connected to Jesus' death and resurrection? What is Matthew's message there? Yeah, um, I would say, for the most part, I think we've covered a, a fair amount of what these earthquakes are representing. Uh, I, I think the earthquakes are key for tying the death and resurrection together. Um, we see there's an earthquake in each, for example, and there's a number, another of other correspondences between the two accounts. But I think that the earthquakes, again, are that signal indicator that this, the, it really ties things back to the Old Testament and, and those Day of the Lord accounts where earthquakes are featured so prevalently. So I think it's a, a very strong indicator that Matthew is uh, casting Jesus's death and resurrection as a fulfillment of the day of the Lord prophecies. Uh, and then there, you, once you notice the earthquake link, you'll see there's other correspondences as well. Just take, for example, the day of the Lord in Isaiah 24 through 27. Uh, in that account, you have, there's an earthquake, there's a shaking of the earth. Um, but then you also have things like God's salvation being mentioned. You have the inclusion of Gentiles 
within the the people of God in both Isaiah and in the the crucifixion scene as well, right? You have, you know, take take the day of the Lord in Isaiah 24 through 27, for example. I mean, in both accounts, you have an earthquake that is prevalently featured. Um, the earth is shaking. Uh, in addition to that, you see mention of the dead being raised, both in Isaiah and in the saints, right, with Jesus and Jesus himself. You see, um, uh, again, like there's salvation from God that's mentioned both in Isaiah and in, in the, the account of, of Jesus' death and resurrection. You even have in, in the Hebrew text, not the Greek of Isaiah, mention of, of darkness over the earth. And clearly that's at play in Matthew's gospel. Um, we see forgiveness of sins mentioned in Isaiah. We see it also and uh, more implied um, indirectly in Matthew's gospel, but it's present, I'd say, at the cross and resurrection. Uh, and you see even mention of, of Gentiles being included within the people of God in Isaiah's Day of the Lord account and Jesus. So, so the earthquakes here are really a focal point that ties the crucifixion resurrection to some of these Day of the Lord accounts. And you see that there's a lot greater resonance there as well. There's a lot of correlations that are at play. So, you know, that's that's a way that the earthquakes are working. And, and I think the other thing to mention, too, is the the shaking language with regards to people where you have the guards at the tomb, for example. Uh, and we could also mention the city of Jerusalem in chapter 21. But in chapter 28 at the resurrection, the, the guards at the tomb are, are shaken. And as we mentioned, that language in the Old Testament really implies judgment um, almost universally. Uh, being shaken is not a good thing. So we see that these guards who are really forming a contrast to the guards at the cross, the guards at the cross give the proclamation about who Jesus was, uh, which aligns with the disciples in chapter 14. Uh, the guards at the tomb however, are, are not confessing who Jesus actually is. In contrast, rather than spreading the truth about the resurrection, like you see the women and then the disciples do uh, in that chapter, the guards are contrasted with them uh, and they're aligned with the Jewish leaders who instead spread a lie about the resurrection. And so it's clear, Matthew sets up quite a contrast in chapter 28 between people who are aligned with God and people who are aligned against God. And we see that the tomb guards really are representative of the people who are aligned against God, against God. And uh, what we see again in the Old Testament is when God comes to judge the world, uh, it's the wicked who are shaken, not the righteous. And, and precisely in this context, which the earthquake in 28.2, again, is bringing to mind that day the Lord language uh, and imagery. Within that context, you have people who are opposed to God being shaken. And so I think that what's actually being at play here is that this is a little preview of, of final judgment where those who are aligned against God will experience uh, judgment and those who are aligned with God will experience salvation, uh, which is precisely what John the Baptist starts warning the nation about in chapter three in Matthew's gospel. So I think that's where the, the, the human shaking language is fitting in with the, uh, the crucifixion resurrection. Well, Brian, before we let you go, what's up ahead for you? Are you working on any new projects? Uh, to be honest, I wish I could work on some new projects right now. But uh, as we talked about earlier, yeah, I am, I'm now a full-time pastor. So uh, I, I don't think that my scholarly days are fully behind me. Uh, but at the moment, I'm having trouble devoting a lot of attention and bandwidth. Uh, if I had time, I think a project I'd be interested in is just looking at time and Matthew. 
Uh, I really, we didn't touch upon it too much here, but I think there's a lot of proleptic type of foreshadowing. We mentioned it for the, the storm stilling versus the crucifixion resurrection. And I think all of these in turn are foreshadows of the final um, coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ as well. And, and then you get into those strange chapters in chapter 10 and, and chapter 24 in Matthew, where you seem to have uh, a lot going on. And I think that might have something to do with Matthew's project here of, of trying to show how Christ really is the culmination of the Old Testament, its continuation, and everything that will come. All of human history is summed up in him. And so I, I'd be curious to look more into that. But, but realistically, I'm not going to have the time anytime soon. So I welcome somebody else to, to take that one on. Brian, thank you for being with us and talking about your recent book, Earthquakes and Eschatology in the Gospel, according to Matthew. Well, it's really great talking with you, Michael. Thank you for this opportunity. Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>